The Christ of the Bible is colossal. King of kings and Lord of lords. It is impossible to exaggerate his majesty. And when I say that, there is no exaggeration. Get it? It's impossible to exaggerate his majesty. Now, Paul has just given thanks in chapter 1, verse 13, that these believers, this little group of Christians in Colossae, had been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. A kingdom. Well, is it much of a kingdom? Is the Lord Jesus much of a king? Does he have real power, real authority? Well, the Apostle Paul is about to blow our minds away. For the Christ of God's kingdom is a colossal king. And these verses, particularly verses 15 to 20, portray the Lord Jesus Christ as supreme Lord and therefore sufficient Savior. And those are our two main headings this morning. Supreme Lord and therefore sufficient Savior. He portrays Christ as the supreme Lord in verses 15 to 18. Supreme in creation and in the new creation, the church. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the exact representation of the God that we cannot see. And yet Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Now, Jesus is not the first creature in the universe, as, for example, the Jehovah's Witnesses teach. I have a confession. I think I've made this before, but the, very, the last time the, the Jehovah's Witnesses called it, at our door in Dublin, I said to the guy, there were always two of them, I said to them both, um, after we very quickly established that they were Jehovah's Witnesses, I, did, I said, did you know that your belief about Jesus was the first ever heresy to be condemned by a worldwide council of the church in AD 325? <laughs> they never came back to our door. <laughs> No, Jesus is not a created being, even the top created being who's in charge of all the others as they would teach. No, that is, that is a heresy called Arianism after a, a man called Arius who taught it and who was not prepared to say that uh, there was a time, there was never a time when Jesus was not. It's a double negative. Or Jesus always was, to state it positively. He said Jesus had a beginning. The Son of God had a beginning. And no, the Son of God had no beginning. He is the creator of all things, verse 16, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. And if people say, well, who created God then? The answer to that is that question is a category confusion. God, by definition, is uncreated. And the language in verse 15 is the firstborn of all creation. It's not talking about biological origins, but social status. The firstborn was the, the son who inherited, basically, the bulk of the estate. So it was about his status, not about the fact that he was born. I found, uh, if you want to cross-reference this up on the screen there, Psalm 89, 27, an extremely helpful indicator of what this word firstborn actually means in biblical thinking. Psalm 89, 27 reads, I will make him the firstborn, comma, the highest of the kings of the earth. 
which makes it very clear that the word firstborn is an indicator of status, not of origin. It's, he is the highest of the kings of the earth. He's the firstborn. And what a status, what a role, if you go back to Colossians 1 to 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, the late professor Stephen Hawking was one of those who spoke of the, the theory of everything, if you remember that phrase, the theory of everything, which would unify all the fundamental interactions of nature, um, gravitation, electromagnetism, the strong and the weak force, all these things were going to be unified in this theory of everything. And when you read something like Colossians 1, you think he, he was definitely onto something. Because here we read that everything in the universe is unified. But this is how it's unified, verse 17. It's Christ who is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Indeed, verse 16, end of verse 16, we discover that all things were not only created through him, but also for him. The very purpose of the existence of the universe is for our Lord Jesus Christ. The very purpose of our existence individually is for our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we're here on earth. And he holds it all together like we might hold in our hands a chocolate orange. Do you like chocolate orange? Do you know what a chocolate orange is? Well, if you don't know what a chocolate orange is, let me briefly describe it. It's, it's spherical like an orange-ish. It's got segments of chocolate, and when you unwrap it, they all fall out into your hand and then through your hand into your mouth and into your stomach, um, if you don't share it. But at that moment when you've opened it, you have to hold it together or it just all falls apart. And there's a sense in which our Lord Jesus Christ holds the whole universe together so that it doesn't fall apart. The reason it does not fall apart is because he holds it in his hand. Now, where is this going? This is an amazing description of the Lord Jesus, but why, why is Paul saying this here and now in the letter? Well, look at the next phrase. And verse 18, he is the head of... Now, how would you complete that, that sentence, having just read these amazing words in verses 15, 16, 17? Well, as those... That little group of Christians in Colossae was sitting in Philemon's house, listening to Tychicus read this out. They discover that their little gathering, their little assembly, and remember the word church is not a religious word originally. It was, it was a secular word. It just meant the assembly, the gathering, the people who were called out together to, to meet. That this little gathering, Christ is the head of the body, the gathering the assembly. Their little assembly, this colossal Christ is the head of their little group. And he's the head of ours too. The one who is supreme in creation is the same one who is supreme in the church. And that should blow our minds because the church in Colossae was tiny, puny, insignificant. And yet the one who created and now governs the universe is the one who is the head of the church, the assembly, this little group, as he is the head of this church. 
and every church of Jesus Christ. When we were in Dublin at one stage, uh, the famous snooker player, Ken Doherty, have you heard of Ken Doherty? Famous Irish snooker player. If you're not into sport, just take it from me. Everybody in Ireland knows who Ken Doherty is. I suspect quite a few of you do. Well, he started coming to church with his wife. He lived down the road in Dublin. And it was very hard in church for people not to look over and nudge their neighbor and say, hey, look, Ken Doherty's in church. Well, every Sunday, we should be nudging one another and saying, you know who's in church today? The Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, no, yes. Amazing, not physically so that you can see him, but by his Holy Spirit, just as really here. And he is the head of the church. He started it. I think that's what the phrase um, in, where is it, in verse 18, he is the beginning. And he's the firstborn from the dead, the first to rise from the dead, never to die again. Not a Lazarus-type resurrection where poor old Lazarus had to die twice. No, this is a resurrection where you never have to die again. This is a different kind of resurrection. So that in everything he might be preeminent. He is number one and colossal. And the question I have for you, if you're a Christian this morning at this point is, how big is your Jesus? If you claim to be a Christian, you claim to be a follower of Christ, Jesus. How big is your understanding of Jesus? Is it big enough? Here, there's a sense in which you are allowed to say more, please. Make my understanding bigger. And if you're not yet a Christian here, how big is your Jesus? Have you just got a little scale model of Jesus? Accurate in certain respects, but just the wrong scale so that you can fit them into your pocket if you want to. No. You need to change your understanding of how big he is. But why is Paul stressing this here? Well, he's stressing this here because he wants us to make a vital connection. And this, is, in a sense, is the thing that I want you to remember from this morning. Because it's vital if we're to grasp the meaning of this letter. And it's this, that if Jesus Christ is the supreme Lord, which he is, then he must also be the sufficient Savior, secondly. He must be the sufficient Savior, verses 19 and 20. There will come a time in your Christian life, and maybe it's already come, maybe it's happened more than once, when you will meet Christians who will make you feel very basic in your faith, even backward. They will speak in glowing terms of experiences they've had, spiritual experiences, of conventions and conferences, of speakers and videos, they'll send you the link, of books and blogs, which could lift you as they have lifted them from a mundane Christian life to a whole new level where there is power and fullness. Have you ever had conversations with Christians like that? Well, it seems that some Christians in Colossae were, were doubting the sufficiency of Christ alone for all their spiritual needs 
and therefore in practice we're denying the supremacy of Christ. So Paul is at pains to underline Christ's sufficiency in his person as God with us. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In Christ we have God with us in his fullness. All the fullness of God, it's an extraordinary phrase, was pleased to dwell in Christ. And not just his sufficiency as a person, God with us, but his sufficiency in his work, God for us. Verse 20, through him, it, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Again, it's a staggering phrase. It's cosmic in its dimensions. All things reconciled to God through Christ. Now, you don't have to live too long in this world to realize that reconciliation between warring parties is immensely difficult, whether it's on the international scale like Russia and Ukraine or within a country like Sudan, torn apart by two powerful people who don't seem to want reconciliation yet, or industrial disputes, the workers against the employers, or within a, a work team where you have people who should be working together, but they're actually at loggerheads, bitter against one another. Or families where you discover that there are people who haven't spoken to each other for, for decades. Or in a marriage which might on the surface seem fine, but actually if you go behind the closed door, you discover that they are at war with each other. And sadly, even Christians can be at each other's throats within a church. Reconciliation is a big word. And the work of Christ on the cross, pouring out his lifeblood, a sacrifice for our sins, was not just for the forgiveness of sins of his people, wonderful as that is, but was to effect cosmic reconciliation between God and a universe dislocated by the great rebellion at the start of time. Because our world has had a twist put in it. It's, it's, it's a broken world, and we know that. And the longer we live in it, the more we realize it's a broken world. It needs mending. It needs putting back together again. And Christ, in his death, has done that. He's effected this reconciliation. So how does this affect the Christian believer? And if you're not yet a Christian, listen in. Because if you're going to become a follower of Christ, this is how it will affect you. And the answer to that question, how it will affect us, is in these last verses, 21 to 23. Whereas one writer puts it with brilliant brevity, Paul proceeds to show them and us our past lives, our present circumstances, and our future in the brilliant light of Christ and his work. So briefly then, your past, what you once were, verse 21. And the answer is alienated. Alienated from God and from others. People may seem very together, particularly in a, a part of the world like this where there's a, there's a certain affluence and a certain order to society. And yet the truth is that everyone who is not reconciled to God is alienated from him. Then hostile in mind. 
It's interesting, isn't it? How, I don't know how you class the people that you know and work with and live among, or your family who are not followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you say, well, they're they're agnostic, they, they just say they don't know, or they're apathetic, they just don't seem to be interested. Well, that is not a category the Bible has. The Bible's category is they are antagonistic. And once you get through the veneer and tear off the veneer, you see that actually their attitude to the God who has sent Jesus to be the king of the universe, the king of kings and lord of lords, is they do not want him. They are standing there, might be silently with their placard, saying, not our king. They are hostile in mind. And it comes out in evil deeds. You can't hide it. And this description is to show just how lost we are without Christ. And that for all of us, even if now we're reconciled, is what we once were. Now the present, secondly. What is the present? How does this affect us in the present? Look at what Christ has now done, verse 22a. He has now reconciled in his body of the flesh, us who were once alienated. No longer alienated, no longer with that broken relationship with God and with others, but reconciled, brought together through a real sacrifice in space and time. I think that's the import of those words, reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. This really happened 2,000 years ago, just outside Jerusalem. So what was achieved was a real reconciliation for those who trust in Christ. As real as the body that Jesus offered in sacrifice, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. So this isn't just a pretend reconciliation or a wished-for reconciliation. This is a real, solid reconciliation. He has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. He took our place, and so we are now reconciled. Our past, our present, and last, our future. What is your future? Well, if you're trusting in this Christ, then you understand the purpose of what he's done. It's in order, verse 22b, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What an extraordinary prospect is in, in view here for the believer. That on the last day, we will be presented before God, free from accusation, acceptable to God, with no one able to say, as we'll see in chapter 2, no one able to say, no, you shouldn't accept this person. Do you not know what they've done? Do you know why, what kind of record they have? And the wonderful hope of the gospel is that the answer to that question is, but their faith is in Christ, who bore their sins. They are now reconciled, and they will be presented before God, holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. And all that's needed is that we continue in that faith. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Why would you shift from this gospel, this wonderful good news that comes through Jesus, our King? So I don't know what kind of king you see in Charles. 
that's your business and doubtless we have different opinions in the room. I hope he'll do a great job. But what kind of king do you see in Jesus? Supreme Lord of the universe? That's the real Jesus. And if you have him, as every true believer does, then you have a more than sufficient Savior to save you from first to last and to present you finally holy and blameless and above reproach before God. And this supreme Lord must be the sufficient Savior. He's all you need. Let's pray.